This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the 481st episode of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg. And for those of you tuning in, we are recording this episode in front of an audience of students at Chapman University, where I'm a trusty professor at the Dodge College of Film and Media Arts. My guest today is a widely admired and much beloved actor whose big screen work now spans 30 plus years. The Los Angeles Times once asserted, quote, he exudes a masculine and earnest accessibility, a throwback charm that hearkens to an earlier Hollywood era and brings to mind names like Flynn and Gable, close quote. While GQ opined, quote, he exudes a kind of solid decency and equanimity that makes the implausible plausible. His presence in a scene makes you believe it, close quote. All of this made him into what The Guardian described in 2008 as, quote, one of the most bankable and audience-friendly stars in the industry, close quote. Shortly thereafter, though, he began to fade from the public eye, but never from the hearts and minds of filmgoers and filmmakers, many of whom grew up with him and were vocal about how much they missed him and yearned for his return. That, of course, has finally happened in a major way, via Darren Aronofsky's The Whale, for which this actor is now, at the age of 54, a Critics' Choice and SAG Award winner, and a Gotham and BAFTA Award nominee, and is also, for the first time in his career, up for an Academy Award. In short, welcome to the Renaissance. Would you please join me in welcoming to Chapman University, Mr. Brendan Fraser. doing <laughs> welcome and thank you so much for for coming brendan it's uh honor to have you here and we're all thrilled you uh you came up and to begin with we always just start at the very beginning can you share where you were born and raised and what your folks did for a living i was born in indianapolis indiana the year of our Lord, 1960. <laughs> My father worked for Tourism Canada. Pee-wee, keep it together. <laughs> Watching you. 
You work for me. That's my dog. We'll meet later. Anyway, Dad worked for Tourism Canada, so our family traveled. About every three, four years, we were going somewhere new. Um, I realized later in life, I think that probably had something to do with why I wanted to be an actor or became one, uh, because of your, you know, the feeling of constantly reinventing yourself or, or you know, getting a new, uh, a new group. You know, like, you know, you come back for a new year, you're making a new social group, and you become a kind of a tribe for a while. You split up and you move on, and it's transitional. But that's it's kind of the, the life of an actor, too. So... It was a good one. And Next in, question. Yeah, no, no. Uh, in addition to that, though, I, I believe you were for, you know, yes, you're moving around the States, but also for a time in Europe where, is that where you sort of first were exposed to, to really great acting? Um, we lived in Europe, yes, uh, in the Stone Ages of the 70s. <laughs> Our families would take holidays to London where I first started to see plays and my eyes were open. I fell smitten with what was happening in the world's biggest toy box that I could imagine. And I wanted, I didn't know what it was that they were doing, but I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to, I wanted to get up on that stage. The play that I saw that, that opened my eyes was um, Oliver, the musical, Oliver Twist. And it was about a little boy who wanted to belong. And I'm pretty sure that at some point or another in our lives, we've all felt like, you know, we, we wanted to belong. And again, it's kind of, that's the life of an actor. Also, you join that tribe and you become a family and then pick up, move on. You see each other down the road again. Yeah. Yeah. You ultimately go off in Seattle to the Actors Conservatory at Cornish College of the Arts. I believe there was somebody there named Hal Ryder, who was quite a mentor of yours. Can you tell us about what, what happened there and with him? My mentor was named Hal Ryder. He's not with us anymore, but he was a big inspiration for me to play the role of Charlie. Uh, he was a man of letters and words. He loved language. He taught text analysis, and uh, he he made classical uh, text and, and iambic pentameter and you know, all that fancy stuff that the Shakespearean guys all talk about. But it made it sound like more accessible to you and I right now. Um, this was someone who uh, taught us how to how to play objectives, um, have tactics to surmount obstacles, and um, really just get down to the, the the brass tacks of what it is to be a, a trained actor. Um, yeah, I, I learned a great deal from a really unique man. I hope that you all have a mentor in your life. At some point or another, if you don't already, um, it's valuable, yeah, <laughs> no yeah. matter how old you get. <laughs> so at the age of 21, it's January 1991, I believe your mom had a Chevy Spectrum. You get in that and you say, I am going from Seattle to Los Angeles. Did no, you what have I said was, what's the top <laughs> speed in this baby? <laughs> <laughs> um, was there something specific awaiting you there, or were you just going to see if there was anything to find out the answer to that? I was, actually, I did. I, I lived in Seattle, and I was going to drive, my plan was to uh, go to grad school. Uh, I had a scholarship for a full tilt at SMU to, uh, 
I later would learn just pretty much teach 101 classes, but that's another story. <laughs> um, I stayed in, uh, in Los Angeles, in Hollywood, for a brief while thinking, um, I'll make a little money, and things worked out. I, I, had, a, I had an audition to get to, um, speaking of objectives. It was for a director called Taylor Hackford, mm-hmm. and he was directing a film called Blood In, Blood Out. It was a gang, gang picture. You seen it, maybe? Mm-hmm. Okay, there you go. <laughs> I didn't get the job, sorry. <laughs> but I did get um, a few phone numbers and some representation, and I s- decided to stay in Los Angeles, and I figured I'll learn on the job more so than I would continuing <laughs> my education. This is not a good message <laughs> considering the house that I'm talking to. <laughs> but I heard that <laughs> my name stayed on the roster for th- three years, so every time they were doing attendance, my name would get called, but... <laughs> I was like Fer- Ferris Bueller, and <laughs> Fraser, Fraser, <laughs> Fraser, you know, the drool. You know. um, yes, so I stayed in, in, uh, in Hollywood. Now, was at, what, at one point, I believe, there's this legendary casting director, Marion Doherty. I think pretty early on you crossed paths with her. Was there something? Marion Doherty was um, a legend. Um, she, she cast a film that I loved. It was called... Um, Slaughterhouse Five, maybe you know it, Kurt Vonnegut, wonderful film. And uh, she was casting a film in Seattle. It was called Dogfight, and it was with Taylor, no, not uh, Lily Taylor, Uh Lily Taylor, (laughs) and um, River River Phoenix. Um, It was about GIs who were shipping out to Vietnam, and they have... uh, one last night to go and get a date, but the mean rub is is that it's with the ugliest girl they can find, and um, clearly these guys have some growing up to do. And uh, in this story, if you haven't seen it, um, River's character he he does that. He falls in love with Lily, and um, I met him. I met River um, because I was cast as Sailor Number One. <laughs> they uh, cut my hair funny and gave me a costume, and uh, we got into a brawl with the Marines because, you know, the Marines and sailors, you know what I mean? Yeah. They threw me against a pinball machine. That's okay. Cracked a rib, gave me an extra 50 bucks score. <laughs> I said, I got more ribs. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, um, I got my. Uh, my union card on okay. that job. Wow. And um, that, that's really started the journey for me. Yeah. yeah. Leading up to 1992, there are two films that you pretty quickly in quick succession appeared in that year. There was School Ties, and, in which you play this Jewish kid in an elite boarding school in New England, 1950s New England, who tries to hide his religion from uh, some anti-Semitic classmates. And then there's also that year... Encino Man playing Link, the caveman who comes back to life in 1990s L.A. These movies could not be any more different. Uh, I wonder if you can talk about, I think you auditioned for them in the opposite order than they came out, right? But how important was that, that people out of the gate saw you as somebody with that kind of range? Lucky. Yeah. That's what it yeah. was. Yeah. I felt... Um, 
I was resistant to to do uh, Encino Man because I was a proper actor, you see, and <laughs> um, <laughs> I had a degree in everything. And, yeah. Um, School Ties was my first film. It was quite an experience. To I, one that I, I can remember probably every day of the '58 that we shot. Uh, film subsequently, I can't remember if it was Tuesday, but I remember <laughs> everything you know that that I had to. To learn was right there on the job. Um, this was a whole generation of the of top young actors coming out. You, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, Chris O'Donnell. I think you've said you guys were all simultaneously going out for Scent of a Woman, which Chris got. But I mean, on that one, just uh, <laughs> Sherry Lansing, the producer, said, quote, we were less than four weeks away from principal photography, and we still didn't have the boy. Brendan came into the room, very shy. We said, here are three scenes, read. And suddenly his stance changes, and this person emerges whom you can't take your eyes off of. He's like all the good ones. They become the person, close quote. So you that's you reading opposite Matt Damon in 19, probably 1991 for the movie that comes out in 1992. And then after that, or before, I'm trying now I got to get the chronology right but to go from that to Link or the other way that's it was that way but then the the, uh, released were inverted yes yes Um, that's right I I had some I guess as I remember there was a the sound mixer on school ties lovely guy his name was Keith Wester Um, he was a a mentor of times to us Um, new actors on the scene we we were we were i don't know if we were billed but we were kind of regarded as the the diner type cast yeah. from the film have you all seen diner ever great film yeah yeah um it kind of introduced a yeah whole new wave of 80s guys we were the 90s guys yeah and then you and a, another guy who you were coming up with and who you've stayed up with is Adam Sandler, along with Steve Buscemi. We are talking about Airheads. This is 1994. Uh, of course, a lead singer of a band that takes over the, what do you call it, the, ra- the radio station, radio station. Yeah. Um, to get a shot. And um, I guess just, did you find, or did you feel at that time, did you have an inclination personally more towards comedy, or was that just how it sort of, for some of those early years, it seemed to be breaking that way. I'm the least funny person I know. <laughs> I don't know why everyone thinks I'm a comedian. Um, it's, it's early. I think the moment you think you're funny, you're not. I'm, you're just, you're not. Ask Adam Sandler. <laughs> He's getting a Mark Twain prize. Yeah, Relax. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I guess the next big milestone that we, we should touch upon, of course, George, this man-child and the uh, Raised by Apes, constantly banging into things. George of the Jungle out in the summer of 1997, a rare summer non-animated family film, although inspired by an animated TV series. And I guess I just wonder what it was that you thought it would be when you signed up, because there is now a whole generation of people who... Are smashing into trees. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us about it. Yeah, how'd you... Come? Uh, well, then, truthfully, you know, I, I am. For, for a while, their parents were stopping, going, oh, man, I really loved you in George of the Jungle. It was such a great movie. I got a bone to pick with you. My kid needed eight <laughs> stitches. <laughs> 
rubber trees. George smashed into rubber trees. Um, it was a broad comedy. We had to approach it just like you would do. Um, I mean, I don't know how to act a cartoon. I, well, maybe I do, but I just don't admit to it. But it's it's uh, it's a world of a film. First of all, um, Georgia Jungle was a Jay Ward property along with um, Fractured Fairy Tales and Rocky and Bullwinkle. And in the late 60s or early mid 70s, that was the Simpsons. You know, that that was subversive humor right there. I mean, that was that was fighting the Cold War with backhanded jokes that got snuck in under the radar and past all of the censors. And so, you know, it was ahead of its time in a way. Um, you know, perfect source material for a Disney movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it was also, I, I think, the first time that you were working in a major way with visual effects, which were really just beginning to go to a next level. What's it like acting opposite things that aren't really there? There wasn't that much uh, blue screen. Uh, um, I thought, no, there was, there, there's a little bit. It was still kind of in its nascency and being used in a way that, you know, you believed or you want, you know, you suspended belief. Um, but there was, uh, there was a day when George introduces his dog, um, who is an <laughs> elephant named Shep. And George, the joke is George doesn't really know it's an elephant, but it's an elephant. He calls it his dog. And so George is introducing Shep to his new lady friend, Ursula, and the shot was designed to create the elephant have big blinky eyeballs like a Labrador and uh, wiggle his ears and his tongue hang out. And to do that was a very fancy computers. Um, there were four or five technicians watching and scrutinizing every move I made because if I reached up and pet the actual elephant past a picture plane like right there, it would be like another $25,000. <laughs> Oh, I spent a lot of money that day. (laughs) Well, it's interesting how, again, throughout your career, there's this back and forth between broad comedy and intimate dramas. And an example of this, you go basically from George of the Jungle the next year to Bill Condon, Gods and Monsters, this movie, wonderful movie. You're playing the maybe slightly homophobic gardener of a, of a gay filmmaker named James Whale who made the Frankenstein films, in this case played by Sir Ian McKellen, who I believe was somebody you had really grown up admiring, right? Absolutely I did. Ian's work um, was what I watched at Cornish College on Beta. He, he did a series called um, Acting Shakespeare that was required to be, and that, mm-hmm. that Hal turned us on to. Um, and I, I'd seen it forwards and backwards and always admired him a great deal. Um, when I came to town, he was doing uh, Richard III. And there was a part in it that I went up for, but I did not get it. Uh, however, I did get a really nice note card from him that said, well, we could certainly use some of your enthusiasm, see you down the road, that kind of thing. And I actually did. That's awesome, so, yeah. That was a fulfillment um, in a big way. Um, Clayton Boone is the name of that character. Um, It was a film that was based on a novel called Father of Frankenstein. And um, uh, James Whale was the 
creator of such incredible films as uh, Bride of Frankenstein. Frankenstein was his, his, his beautiful creation, was James Whale's creation. And the character was this uh, moody, um, I think today we call him toxic, mm-hmm. masculinely toxic, toxically masculine kind of guy who learned to, to be a man. He, what he thought what it meant to be was um, completely the opposite because of this sort of oddball friendship that this film was about. Um, two people who really shouldn't be friends were the best of friends. Uh, so it was, a very, it was a very sweet story and, and uh, I think an important one too. And one I should tell you that, um, it, that none of the studios would, wanted to touch it with a 10-foot pole. They're like gay directors. You anticipate. No, seriously, they yeah. didn't want... And, um, Bill Condon was like a bulldog with the movie, and he he took it to then a little-known distribution company in Vancouver, B.C. that was named after a bridge called Lion's Gate. <laughs> and so Gods and Monsters launched Lion's Gate. That's true. Yeah. And this was... $4 million indie shot in just 24 days. It was like we had T-shirts that said <laughs> $2.8 million 2. 8. <laughs> in 28 days, nothing but airplanes over right. there. Like, really. But it is amazing what you're we saying. We rolled out. We ran out of film, actually. You know, <laughs> But it's, it's kind of amazing that just 25 years ago, what we're talking about is a situation where this movie can go to Sundance, be a hit, and then not really have any luck with a distributor. Here's what uh, McKellen said, quote, it was a film about a gay man starring a gay man that was written and directed by a gay man, close quote. Essentially, like, good luck selling that. <laughs> and yet, when it did get eventually picked up and shown, best film of the year from the National Board of Review, great response to you and Sir Ian. He gets an Oscar nomination in the category that you are now nominated in. Um, it's just kind of a nice moment. I just saw Ian recently. He, he moderated a, a chat of a screening of The Whale in, in London, and uh, we didn't talk about The Whale. We just chat with each other. <laughs> I hadn't seen him in, you know, it's been a minute. Um, he's still the same. Very cheeky. Very funny. <laughs> really sweet guy. So one of the things that I, I've noticed, I know I'm not the only one, between School Ties and Sino Man, Dudley Do-Ray, Blast from the Past, in which you're playing this guy who comes out of a nuclear shelter uh, after 35 years. I mean, it seems like you are often asked to play outsiders who are trying to fit in. Now, you mentioned your childhood, that there was some element of that in your own life. Do you think that's just a coincidence, or do you do casting directors see something? What, what is that about? Maybe a little of each. Um, I can identify with being the new guy you know a lot of those characters were they were the babe in the woods they were the naif um uh, the new guy in town uh, david green was from school ties he just really wanted to fit in and get along and he had to make a decision about if or not he could re- own who he is or he would hide that in the face of the anti-semitism that he was confronted with and he learned a lesson about himself. It came at a cost, well, like life, but um, he he became, he owned, he took ownership of his life and that, that was his his journey. Um, so he was like a new guy in town trying to get along and in a lot of ways, Linkovich Chomovsky from Encino mm-hmm. Man, was, he was a pretty new guy in town too. You know, wheezing the juice is, isn't that easy. You got you know, to get somebody to do that for you. Um, I, I think a lot of those characters felt like, you know, they were the ones 
we didn't know what to expect until it happened. Right. And um, I, I, whether it was accident or design, I could identify with, uh, with that. Yeah. This brings us to 1999 and The Mummy. <laughs> Rick O'Connell, American adventurer, stumbles upon a burial site in Egypt and unleashes all sorts of insanity. Uh, this was so huge, $416.4 million worldwide. I think you probably reached more people with one movie than everything up to that point. I don't know. I think George of the Jungle was pretty big too, but just... What drew you to that where it would obviously end up being three films, maybe still to be added to? We'll see. But uh, just um, what what was the draw for you there? Steven Summers uh, was inspired by films like Jason and the Argonauts and the Sinbad movies and pretty much anything that Ray Harryhausen did. And he loved big adventures and swashbuckling, and uh, he wrote this incredible screenplay um, that took the conceit of what we thought the mummy was of some boring old guy going, uh, he's wrapped up in bandages, and he was like, no, no, it's going to be like Jaws and <laughs> Terminator monster mummies. Can't stop him. It's going to be awesome. And we all thought, okay, we had no idea what kind of movie we were making. We didn't know if it was a... a adventure movie a horror picture uh, like a romance a straight ahead action picture all of it and if you if you look at the first if you look at the first film you can see editorial choices that kind of bleed over into the edges of they didn't really know either mm -hmm. <laughs> so its audience kind of found that movie um and and it, it became an audience champion. So, you know, if it worked once, why not come back and do it again? So right. we made The Mummy Returns. Yes. Now, that was 2001. Oh. And you have said, though, that after that one, this is your phrase, I couldn't get arrested. <laughs> why was that? What was going on? I, you know, Hollywood's a real hot and cold, um, really fickle <laughs> uh, place sometimes. And, and, and uh, honestly... It's like a heat-seeking missile. You know, when you're when you're when you're hot, you're, you're on target. If you're not, you're out of sight, out of mind. And I know a thing or two about that. Uh -huh. um, any actor is going to go through that. The phone's going to stop ringing. You're going to wonder who your agents, where they are. You know, um, and that's part of the drill. Is the challenge of deciding if or not you're going to stay in this. And um, are, are there, how many, just for help me out here, how many filmmakers are we here in the house? Just show hands, clapping, shout. So many. Okay, you know what I'm talking we're, we're family then, okay? Um, you got to stay in the game. You really do. And, and uh, persistence and uh, preparation and maybe a little dumb luck can help. But hang on to, hang on to whatever it is that really got you excited about why you want to be a part of this and you go through the bumps and, and, uh, th you know, things pick up they slow down. But, um, if, if you, if you love what you do, it doesn't feel like a job anymore. We will note that in between the second and third mummy films, that means between 2001 and 2008, you were in several wonderful, more art house kinds of movies that I want to ask you about. I don't know if the, this first one I'm going to mention may have been, the ball might have been rolling even before the second mummy, but I know there was a bit of delay because of world events. But can you talk about The Quiet American, which is sure. one of the great 
performances I think of yours and it's you. you opposite Michael Caine this is an adaptation of a 1955 Graham Greene novel that had been made into a movie before 1958 and now it's it's you Michael Caine and in a love triangle with a Vietnamese woman the, the Quiet American is uh, an indictment of American foreign policy. Um, as it was written, Graham Greene was asked famously why it's called The Quiet American, and he responded, because he's dead. <laughs> um, that's, so that's, it's all there in, in the title. Um, the film that we shot was shot in Vietnam. Uh, Philip Noyce was the director, and it was in 2001. The story itself is one of Vietnamese cultures. It's their, it's their story. It's their national story. It's they, they fought the French they, just before the Americans showed up and said, hey, let's talk about this. And it's, a, it's a triangle, I agree with you, with Thomas Fowler, um, played by Michael Caine, is the world-weary European, seen-it-all-done-that journalist who files every now and then just to stay in the job because he's really enjoying his time in Saigon. He has a girlfriend and she is beautiful and perfect and silent and intelligent and wiser than he gives her credit for. And in walks this hapless American with great ideas about how to make it all a better place. And this, this love triangle ensues and you quickly learn that Whereas these two men think that they've got one over on her, they're fighting over her, she's playing them against each other like a rented piano. And, <laughs> um, it's a fantastic book. If you know it, read it again. Um, I was so happy to be a part of it because of the gravity of the material. Um, we worked in locations that were, um, for instance, there was one seen, I think there's a clip of it, they showed in the reel of where there was a, a car bombing that goes off. There's an event, a terrorist event, and it, uh, it set in a lot of, a lot of events in, in motion, and one thing you know, turned to the next, and battles ensued. And we shot really on the location that something like that happened in the 1950s. And while we were there, um, I, 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 there was somebody from the embassy, from the American embassy, who introduced me to a man, and he had a, a bit of French. I have a little bit of French, and I could speak to him. It turned out, he said, I was, uh, I was, I worked right over on that street over there. I was on my bicycle. I was going to see my uncle, and I was delivering laundry, I think is what he said, and he heard a horrible sound, and he got off his bicycle, and he saw this, this aftermath. Um, so I say this because of <laughs> the following reason. When this film came to market, and uh, it was a Miramax production. There was a garden variety screening of The Quiet American on September 10th, and the team was going to go get notes at the offices the next morning, and they saw the whole thing. So the film went on ice, or the chopping block. Um, the the uh, owner of the film was somebody who's in jail now for a really long time. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. You can clap. <laughs> he actually told me in this ear, he said, um, 
I want you to malign me to the press. I want you to make me out to be the big bag ogre under the bridge. And go figure, right? <laughs> um, as sir, I'm not going to do that. But he thought, no, we'll make this a cause celebre because he didn't want to market the film because he didn't want to do what he thought was wrong for the American people. And a piece ran in the Washington Post that was titled, uh, Let the Quiet American Speak. And it was essentially saying, hey, look, we're not children. Why can we not see this film, Miramax? Thankfully, Michael uh, Kane took it to Toronto for the Toronto International Film Festival. And God bless the Canadians. <laughs> they, they gave it a standing ovation. And it went on to um, receive a, a lot of good recognition and also an Oscar nomination for, for Michael Caine in this category again. So uh, you're good company. But um, the other one that I mentioned in that, that period, that time period that I raised, Crash, which was a film in which you play the district attorney of Los Angeles married to a woman played by Sandra Bullock. These guys are carjacked, which is a traumatic event for them. Then their home, uh, the locks are changed and she's still affected by this. And you guys, it's just sort of the whole movie is about the ricochet effect, I guess, of, of, of traumatic incidents and bigotry and... And the obvious racial tension that existed in it, Los Angeles. Yes. The height that it did. It's, it's a film. It's a product of its time. I haven't watched it recently. I don't know if it holds up. Your film students, have y'all seen Crash at all? I mean, I think there are themes that are still relevant. You don't get everything right or wrong, but the intention was there to to open a dialogue and to um, ex extend an open hand and say, hey, look, we're all scared. We can talk about this. And it was, it was, it was made as a, to make a step in the right direction. Um, I, I, uh, I think we can build on that from where we are now. So one of you smart young whips go out and make another crash, would you? <laughs> Were you there the night that it won the Best Picture Oscar? It was one of the more surprising moments and not nothing against <laughs> You're the, telling me. Yeah. Um, no, I was not there. I was, I was in Mexico City working on a film called um, The Air I Breathe. And yes. I was working with uh, Sarah Michelle Geller. Yeah. My, my friend, Sarah. Yeah. The SMG, I call her the submachine gun. You know. <laughs> Halo was really big in those days. Right. <laughs> Dual wielding. <laughs> I, I know, I know. I'm cool. I'm cool. Um, we were in, we were in the, we were in a, a shot maker, which is, you know, a, a flatbed. You put the vehicle on it and you drag it around the place and it looks like you're driving, but you're really not. <laughs> And we were in Mexico City. We were going around the Victoria Monument in the middle of town. It's downtown Mexico City. It's late at night. And uh, I look out the window and I see this wheel just like... <laughs> what the shit was that? <laughs> sure enough, the wheel came off the back of the trailer. <laughs> we were in Mexico City. Stuff happens, you know? Yeah. And so we pulled over and um, Sarah, to fix it, I guess, somebody went and found the wheel. And... She looks at her phone, this next telephone. She's like, oh, look, it won. You guys won, you won for Best Picture for Crash. <laughs> We're like, yeah, great, awesome. <laughs> I'm here with a flat tire <laughs> in Mexico City. But we made the best of it because there's a mariachi band on every corner. There you go. You just give them 50 bucks, party time, <laughs> instantly. So we had cervezas and really big guitars and large hats, and we sang all the way back to the... That's great. Um, yeah, we had our own party. Well, so 
by the time of the third mummy in 2008, you were a pretty physically beaten up guy, right? Can you talk, you've said that this led to seven years of hospital visits. Can you, can you tell us what Sure. Happened? Well, it's a tall guy thing for one, you know, the knees and the hinges and the joints, tall guys, you feel me? <laughs> um, a combination of that, probably trying too hard at work on the job, not working smart, but working too hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess I, I threw myself into the parts a little more vigorously than I really knew that I needed to. I can remember doing airheads and Joe Montaigne seeing how excited we were getting because we were going to get to jump off of the thing into the crash mat down below. And <laughs> he's like, yeah, just settle down. Let the stunt guys do this. And we we're like, no, no, let's do it. And so we did the thing. We jumped off and sure enough, Adam went <laughs> just jacked his neck up and everything like that. Oh. And, Oh, I know, I know. And, and but you're 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 made of plasticine. You're fine. You bounce a little. You know, you come back, and this stuff catches up with you. Anyway, so long story short, yeah, I needed to get some work done. <laughs> <laughs> it took a while. It was a hospital, a hospital, a hospital. You know, it's kind of like painting your house. I like this room. Paint it this color. Paint it this color. Now those, so there were those injuries. And then you, when you were nice enough to be a part of our Hollywood Reporter Actor Roundtable not long ago, you spoke about a, a moment on a movie called Furry Vengeance in 2010. You're playing a guy who wants to clear a forest in the Pacific Northwest for development, but he's thwarted by the animals that live there. And this culminates, in a way, in a scene. Hilarity ensues. Yeah. <laughs> But but I guess in, in, in all seriousness, you, you sort of felt there was a moment. I, I did. Um, first of all, don't work with animals. <laughs> uh, yeah, I had an epiphany. I was in a porta porta potty. Uh, I was being chased by a bear. Uh, the bear inverted the porta potty with me in it. <laughs> Hilarity ensued. <laughs> and I um, remember feeling very small and uncomfortable. <laughs> and I had a little talk with myself, and I thought, mm, maybe this isn't for me right now. <laughs> so I left the broad comedy for a while, and um, I, I, I think, I don't remember what I did next. I think the, the business changed a little bit, and I started working in episodic television. Yeah. Oh, I, which is cool. I, did a, I, I had a really great run with a show called... Um, Trust yes. that, that uh, was on FX. It was about the Getty family, and uh, I was the fixer. And that um, came out of the affair, which was, you'd been on that, season that three of the affair. Also that, also that. I, I love the affair because did y'all know the show at all? That's great. Yeah, it's kind of like it's a Rashomon story. If you see the story from whoever character's perspective is a little bit different. They would dress a little differently. Different things happen. So there's a, a great deal of flexibility. Um, with story structure that uh, the producers indulged me to contribute ideas, and I, I started getting some confidence back, and um, it was a it was a good show. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 
Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. In those, you know, quote-unquote leaner years, you were, you never stopped working. You were never went away. Like people say, where would you go? Uh, you, I know you, you, you make sure to tamp that down because it's not, I guess there's some people who felt like, had you lost your love for acting or was it just, no. So what was your experience rather than letting other people characterize it during those years? Look, I don't care what they say as long as they're saying something. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I'm, I feel like it was a time that I just needed to regenerate, regroup, have a think, have a family, kids, all that, and um, really put put value where I needed it most. Um, and I was never that far away. I mean, I think I'd go bonkers if I wasn't doing something. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's, there's a great deal to be uh, acknowledged or said that, you know, once you're, like I said earlier, once you're out of sight, you're out of mind. And it's those lean periods that you're going to have to deal with as an actor, no matter what, mm-hmm. or as a writer or as a director, you know. You'll find out. (laughs) I've got one last project to ask you about before The Whale, and that is one that I believe was shot right after The Whale, but may have been intended for release before it. However, it has not, and it doesn't appear that it will uh, see the light of day. And that is a project from HBO Max called Batgirl, in which you were the pyromaniac villain. uh, I did my job. Firefly. (laughs) Just for for people, because this is, you know, we're, I guess the business is always changing and this may be in some ways uh, indicative of a new direction some places are going in. Can you just explain for people who don't know, like what exactly happened there? No, I don't know the exactitude. Is that the word? Um, Who am I kidding? It was about saving money. The film was... Leslie Grace was fantastic. I'm sad that this film won't come out because of how terrific she really was in this part. I was there. I saw it. She was really, really good. Really cool. And it it pains me to think that little girls are going to have to wait a lot longer now before they can see a Batgirl who they can identify with and say, hey, she looks like me. You know, I want to be her. It, it was a really empowering story in that way. It really was. Uh, Dylan Bilal, who did the Bad Boy movies, shot it. They're really good at blowing shit up. (laughs) (laughs) And they love doing it. They're so good at it. They love uh, practical effects. I personally dislike pyrotechnics. They (laughs) love them. And my character is called Firefly. (laughs) He's the firefighter. Um, He he was a good character. He was, uh, I thought he was really cool. I liked him. He was sympathetic in an interesting way. He was a vet who fought in um, the Gulf War. He helped put out uh, oil derricks that were aflame as Saddam Hussein escaped and cowardice back to Baghdad. And he knew what he was doing, you know, with flashbangs and things that go boom. And um, he got out of the service. His benefits got cut. And he was very angry about that. And 
you know, he's a bad guy. He's got a screw loose, but what's he going to do but burn Gotham to the ground? And I thought it was uh, a really um, a cool character with some social consciousness snuck in there at the same time. So, you know, I was all in. And again, like, and, and, and uh, Leslie was just fantastic. Um, I don't know. Look, you know, it was, a, it was formatted for a, uh, it was shot, conceived of, and created for the streaming service uh, on HBO. And, you know, right now, for those of you all know, there's kind of a horse and cart or internal combustion engine kind of debate going on about, you know, where are we in filmmaking? We have three by five screens. We have massive ones like this. There's no excuse to not see anything. Content, content, content. Too much content, you know. With the case with, with Batgirl, I think it was the canary in the coal mine to see if or not this streaming platform um, really is a viable business model. I'm really getting in over my head with this economic stuff. But nice. in, uh, in brief, it, in, in the end, it, it was a business decision from yeah, like what I understand. That's just like reading your, reading, reading, yeah. reading your publication too. Yeah. Well, this brings us to a film that this audience has just seen here. But for our listeners, uh, I will describe that in Darren Aronofsky's The Whale, you play Charlie, this obese man who teaches English online and is trying to reconnect with his estranged daughter. Um, this is a film that Darren Aronofsky has been wanting to make for, I believe, over a decade since he saw Samuel Hunter's play in a weird way, it's maybe even more timely now than when it came out because we all uh, have a sense of isolation that we're familiar with through the pandemic, I think. Um, and I know that's something that perhaps you'll you'll want to weigh in on. But I just wonder to begin with, do you know, Darren has said basically that the reason it took so long from his point of view was that he was unable to find somebody who he believed could live up to this difficult Part and until he came upon some something of yours that made him reconsider that. And I, I can you share if he's told you what he saw and then how you found out that he was interested in you? Well, the word on the street was Darren was going to make a movie. Everybody wants to get in on that. I mean, it's mm -hmm. Darren Aronofsky, he's mm -hmm. world class filmmaker, um, <sighs> offers up no easy answers to the thornier questions he asks of his audience about the human condition, dares you to look away. Um, it, clearly, as you saw, he's a very courageous, artistic cineast. And um, I, I will admit to <laughs> no small measure of creative intimidation when I met him at first. He was, a, honestly, he was a gentleman, and he was quite forthright about the task he had to, to create Charlie. Um, Charlie is a unique character. He's a man whose body weighs hundreds and hundreds of pounds. He, he, is, he is not who he is as he presents. He's a father. He's an educator. He's a, he was a husband. Um, he's a man. And he uh, was someone that in a character that Darren saw and thought, this is someone who you would easily dismiss or disregard. And for that, he wanted to know more about um, who, th who this man is at home. And we see his world, this dim two-bedroom apartment in anywhere Idaho, uh, where Charlie lives. Um, and somehow 
inside of the world of this little apartment, he's, he's like a beacon of light. He's like a lighthouse at sea. And th- this, this was a conversation that we had when we first met. Which um, was the result of, I, just to quickly just document it, he had, of all things, seen a trailer for your Oh, yeah, he, saw, he yep. saw a picture called Journey to the End of the Night I did with Scott Glenn. Back yeah. in 2006. That's right. So yeah. I guess there's a quick lesson is you never know what's going to what's going to be the thing that really no. matters, right? I, we're, I guess you got to bring your A game all the time because yeah. you never know who's going to see what work right? you do, you know? And, uh, hey, if that got Darren to pay attention and go, hey, Brendan Fraser's still alive? Like then, <laughs> you know, get him in here. Um, and, and again, he was really, he was, he had a, he had a challenge in casting this role. He had looked for, as he says, 10 years. Um, he looked at all manner of A-list actors, unknowns, people from o- overseas, European actors, and he didn't see what he needed. Um, and he attested that he thought, well, okay, this is the one that gets away in his career. Um, and I guess I'm making myself the hero of his story, but we met <laughs> yeah. and um, I, I knew I wanted to be a part of this project for the gravity that it had and the story it had to tell about redemption and love. And um, I, I, I felt like I knew a Charlie and my mentor and I knew versions of them, an amalgamation. And, and I'm, if I just, can I just ask you, do, do y'all know, like, do y'all have a Charlie in your life? Is there, he's familiar. He was, I felt like he was a friend, you know, and as a little actor, woo woo, but I, I really wanted, I really want to get to know this guy. I wanted to play this part. Um, and the only way to, to know him properly was to invest everything I could, uh, in, in this, in this job and in this character. And it, it was no um, small feat because of how his body needed to be created. Uh, and he had a real nuts and bolts attitude about it. He said, we're going to do this with prosthetics. Just in the same way that you would see a film that had a creature or a monster, you know, whatever like that. This was a suit performance in that regard. Um, Adrian Moreau is the name of the makeup artist who's also nominated this year for, mm-hmm. for an Oscar for his work. Mm-hmm. Um, he's extraordinarily talented and he has been experimenting, had been experimenting for some time with uh, 3D printing uh, appliances by creating the molds to skip a step. There's no life cast in that case. In other words, you know, you get your actor, whoever it is, alive there, and you pour goop on your face. And then from that, you make a bust and then you put horns on it or whatever you want. And then from that, you make a mold. But a step is skipped because I was scanned with an iPad in my driveway. Um, that information went to Montreal where he was working in the studio. He created Charlie uh, virtually. He treated... Uh, his entire body like a texture map so he could zoom in on the size of pores, anomalies in the skin, everything, so much detail. And that's essential because if we didn't use practical prosthetic makeup to create this properly, an audience will never believe this character. I mean, a number of years back, I did a film called Bedazzled. And Mm -hmm. in it, 
Elliot plays seven different lives and there was prosthetic makeup in there. It was a broad comedy and um, we come a long way since then. So to create Charlie, it had to be impeccable and um, something that when you see him at first, it's, it's arresting and you go, wait, 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 is that, is that the guy from Georgia, the jungle? Is he like, you know, <laughs> what's he watching on his laptop? You know, oh, <laughs> um, and once that surprise goes by, you, you feel like you know this guy and, and you're not um, distracted by any a perceived artifice that comes with, uh, you know, a faulty makeup. And, and just so people know, because there are, just as a process question, Ryan, you're there every day for how long in the makeup chair as this uh, comes to comes to life? Uh, well, Adrian got there an hour before I did, so he'd be there at 3, I'd get there at 4. We we usually had an 8.30 or 9 o'clock call, depending on what we were doing, so it was, it was four hours in the chair. Um, why am I laughing? <laughs> <laughs> And this because he's a great guy, we, we, <laughs> we just we became really fast friends and um, watched a lot of YouTube videos. I think our favorite ones were that week uh, Korean street food. <laughs> I don't know why. Oh, there's exciting things they're doing with eggs in Korea. Let me tell you, <laughs> so I, many eggs. <laughs> I think people should realize though that in order to not do what has so often been done in movies, which is a kind of demeaning just quote-unquote fat suit you guys are in some cases that's here. a term that you'll never hear me say and i i'm, yeah. not, call, I'm not calling you out no i um, mean i said yeah not that uh, the film is about in many ways the bias that we hold against those who live with obesity and the vernacular that we use that's still common parlance i mean there are there's terminology that we have retired that has no place being spoken of and i think terminology that can lean into the bias against those who live with it actually is harmful to people. I do know that how we speak to one another and of one another has a lasting effect and definitely not just mental health side effects, but physical ones too, clearly. I worked with the Obesity Action Coalition, who are um, an advocacy group who number tens of thousands of members, and they uh, support uh, those who live with obesity, their families, Referrals. If if you if you if you need a, a resource to look towards, I would point you in that direction. Um, anyway, their mission is to change this, uh, this these prevailing attitudes. If we accept that the shaming that comes along with a person who lives with obesity is, it, to my understanding, almost like the last refuge of prejudice that we still abide. And I think we could do better to change that. So this was a film that can change hearts and minds from what I could see after we finished it. Um, and I can tell you right now at the, the OAC, the Obesity Action Coalition, the number of inquiries have gone up, 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 up since this film has come out, which means that where people were formerly unwilling to ask for help, they are now. People are saying, I'm going to make a change or I'm, I'm going to get that procedure. Um, and, and I think that's, um, it does my heart good, but I also, I firmly believe that Charlie's a character that, um, as they say, could save lives. You know? Totally. Well, when you and Darren were first speaking, he 
I guess there was some acknowledgement of the fact that he is previously with the wrestler, you could say, reintroduced an actor. In that case, it was, uh, of course, Mickey Rourke. Great. Yeah. Yes, um, that wasn't lost on me. Um, and Natalie also. And well, I mean, she was doing fine for her professional life, but she was definitely um, reintroduced. Natalie Portman and Black Portman Swan. Natalie Portman um, Interesting that the, the wrestler and Black Swan were both... <laughs> they were both thematically um, perform or die yeah. <laughs> as themes, yeah. going, you know, yeah. um, and uh, I think that sp speaks on a base level to anyone creative <laughs> mm -hmm. in a way. Um, and Darren does have a sense of humor, by the way. <laughs> but this idea of being reintroduced, as you said, you never went away. But maybe I guess this was in a, uh, your first sizable part since 2013. I think it's in a may. I don't want to say every part's, but uh, you know that's maybe the wrong word. But it was a maybe the first lead of a film of this size. I don't know how to put it. But um, was that a thing that you embraced this idea of being reintroduced? Oh, absolutely. Um, look, we 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 all lived under existential threat. <laughs> if we're honest about it. Someone who's very clever, I feel, is in the house right now. Who should write a paper? And I want to tell you about this. Yeah. I want to pitch it to you. Please, someone have a think about the films that were made between 2019 and 2022, early 2022, and see if you can find a thread that connects them all. I have an idea about what it might be, and that is this. Stay with me. Because of the lockdown and the pandemic and the circumstances that we lived under and that we felt there might, well, not be a tomorrow or a next week, we would either retreat and stay home as well we should, reasonably, or when it was time to emerge again and go off into the world and do what we do as humans, as professionals, etc. Um, we had to be really careful about that. And in films, I notice... A, it's something, a translucence or something about that connects the stories that have all been told during this period. And I think that it is um, because of the care that we had for one another, certainly to get the protocols in place for you guys to come back to school even and, and for us to, to, to do our jobs on sets. Um, it, it meant extra concern for one another. And maybe this is just me thinking about it too much, but I really think that's the secret ingredient in a lot of films that we've seen between oh. 19 and 22. There's, there's a feeling of we might as well give it everything we've got because there might not be a tomorrow. We might not be invited back to do this again, perceptibly. Oh. And, um, and at the same time, it's, it's a, it's a risk that you take in, in, in art, not in life, I believe in taking risks because going towards that, that edgy danger area creatively is where a lot of the best growth will come from. I think that's what, I think that's what happened. Did I just write the paper I pitched you? <laughs> Someone we'll, please do better. I'm bad at spelling. We'll get it to you if and when uh, that's actually turned in. But um, one final question for me before we turn it over to the students, Brendan. This film, I don't know where you saw it for the first time, but we saw you seeing it in after you'd seen it in public for the first time. This was at the Venice Film Festival, where it received a six-minute standing ovation, understandably leaving you quite uh, moved. Then 
the film goes into theatrical platform release and it had the best limited theatrical release of 2022 uh, per theater average. Then goes on to all sorts of uh, acclaim that I've started at the top mentioning, but also now three Oscar nominations, not just yourself for Best Actor, but also Hong Chow for Best Supporting Actress and Adrian Moreau and his team for Best Hairstyling and Makeup. So my final question to you is, what has this last, I guess, six months been like for you to see the response to your work and also to yourself personally? It seems like in a way that is not at all common, people are really excited and thrilled to have you back. I'm humbled. I don't know what else to say. I'm grateful. I'm, it's affirming. Um, I think we made a film that's really reaching people in a meaningful way. That's the hope, you know, no one deliberately sets out to make something that sucks, but you know, <laughs> sometimes you don't have control over how okay. things are received. And this is a film that has, it's spoken to people. It's, it's opened hearts and minds and also a dialogue on the number of men and fathers who I've met in the last six months or so who told me that that's that's my relationship with my daughter. I want to go and reapproach it in a new way to to mend fences. To, there are there there's there's some healing that's coming of the drama that we see on the screen. So that's that's what's most rewarding to me. That's great. We are now gonna hand some mics to students, and then we're gonna come over here. Uh, hi, my name is Sebastian. Big George of the Jungle fan. So thank you. Uh, so I don't know if you heard, but Kihui Khan came in yesterday to do a master class, and I know this has been kind of like a big comeback year for the two of you with the whale and everything everywhere all at once. So could you kind of describe your relationship in this award season with him? Sure. Ki and I were in Encino Man together. Did you know that? It's true. 30, 32, 31 years ago. Right. Uh, he ran the computer club. I was the new guy. <laughs> and there were two dudes who were kind of not being cool to him. And I said, come be my friend. And that's, that, that's how we met on screen. Um, 30 of a lot of years later, <laughs> I ran into him in the office of a building for an, our, our round table. Your chat. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like brother. Yeah. yeah. We're still here, man. Yeah. He's like, he like, yeah, we are. We're still here. <laughs> get rid of us. Can I just tell you, I knew that he was here last night. You know why? Because there's a googly eye. <laughs> it's mine now. <laughs> That's great. Hi, <laughs> I'm Macy. My question is, I feel like all of us as aspiring filmmakers, or at least myself, view the collaborative process from sort of like a straight and narrow angle and I just feel like it's important to know from you as an actor what qualities you value and look for in the people that you work with and the projects that you choose to sign on to. I think um, it depends on the project. You know, um, the, the Whale was um, a play. It was a stage production that Darren saw in 2012. He optioned the rights, Samuel D. Hunter, and they worked on it for 10 years to try and get it made. We did. To understand our job, we, we rehearsed 
for three weeks. A24 gave us three weeks. That's unheard of, but they did. And Darren declared us a theater company on day one. The set was taped out one-to-one and standby props and furniture. And we watched one another's scene work. We made our mistakes. We made our discoveries. Our, we bonded. We gained our confidence, found our voice. So by the time we had actually gone through the rehearsal and he and Maddie Libatique, a cinematographer, figured out where to put the camera, inspired um, a lot of really good shots just through that rehearsal process. I can, I can give you one example. Do you remember when Ellie first comes into uh, Charlie's apartment and she's kind of casing the place? And she's real cagey, and she walks around behind Charlie, and she knows that he can't turn his head. So when we were rehearsing, Sadie went around back because she wanted to see if she could make me really uncomfortable. <laughs> and it worked. And so that inspired, you know, that long lens shot of just the back of Charlie's head with glimpses, glimpses and glances trying to find her in the room. Um, I think the, the best answer is, is that you need people who are dedicated to a common vision. And if they're not, don't work with them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Find your people. You will. You will. Hi, I'm Nick. And I'm curious, when you're filming something like The Whale with that emotional weight, what's the demeanor like on set? And how do you, as the lead actor, like step out of Charlie's shoes after you're done and not take that with you? Good question. Um, well, it was, um, it was like this. Uh, Hong, Hong Chao is incredible as a performer. I think she has more in her face that she can convey without speaking a line of dialogue. She can say more in between lines and the pauses and the silences than you know she can by reading the proper lines themselves. Um, I I felt connected um, with her as a best friend character, and that bond that she and I had. Um, is apparent on, in the relationship that you see on, on screen. Um, it felt emotionally challenging, as it should have been. And again, I think it's part and parcel from the circumstances of shooting in kind of a submarine ship kind of environment, so tight and close on top of one another. There's a great deal of trust there. Um, the emotional reality of this story is right on the surface, is sometimes hard to look away from, as well it should be. And by the day's end, when I could have all the costume and makeup taken off, which took about an hour, um, an interesting thing happened. I wasn't anticipating the, the uh, cumbersome nature of the um, appliances. Made, you know, your body reacts, and uh, I... I started developing, you know, unique, weird muscles that you don't, you know, when you put your skates on, you take them on, you're like, oh. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of got good at wearing the suit. And when it came off, I kind of felt a sense of vertigo. And I was like, what's going on? You know, I, I think it, it was an experience that was giving me a unique opportunity to understand what it really feels like to be that person. Um, and it, uh, it stayed with me. I'll admit, I'll tell you when the show was done um, and the last time it all came off, I had an emotional response that I was not anticipating. I felt 
I felt quite overwhelmed in a way. Like I, I was saying goodbye to a friend or, you know, I, I don't mean to get too in my head about this to answer your question, but the truth was um, I gave it everything that it had and um, I had no other moves to spare. And I, f I felt like that I owed it to this guy. So it was a little bit of just really investing in the work as much as I could and um, allowing myself to be changed by it at the same time. Hi, hello. I would be doing my classmates a disservice if I did not ask you about Looney Tunes back in action. Shoot. My question is, um, with such a star-studded cast like a former Bond or Steve Martin, what was it like sharing the screen with such Hollywood heavy hitters as Daffy Duck and Bugs He's Bugs. an asshole. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's all <laughs> <Whoa>, about Daffy. <laughs> pages out of the script. There goes trailer. Right. <laughs> Bugs is actually a really cool guy. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Everything you've heard about him is true. Hi, um, who do you think would win in a wrestling match, Lemmy or God? <laughs> Trick question, Lemmy is God. <laughs> but nice try. <laughs> if it's too loud or too old. Airheads. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ellis. Um, so I was wondering if uh, you have a particular method or, or a set of techniques or anything like that that you like to use when you're preparing for a role and if maybe that's a little different when you're playing someone like George of the Jungle versus uh, someone like Clayton in Gods and Monsters or, or um, Charlie in the Whale. I think the, the bottom line is you have to believe what you're doing because if you do not, your audience will not either. Um, it, it, you know, it, it, we can create any image. We can do anything. If you can imagine it, it can be on the screen. It, and you know that. You're students. It's what you do. You're the next generation. I, I'm excited for you. You're going to find so many cool things to bring to this screen. We need you. Keep doing what you're doing. Anyway, I digress. Um, believe in what you're doing. I think the character's requirements for George of the Jungle. Yes, I watched a lot of cartoons. <laughs> yes, I went to the gym a lot. Um, uh, no, I, I didn't wear much clothing at work. Um, <laughs> it was the job. Yeah. Um, to prepare for that... What was uh, it really for that one? It was just all about energy. For t to do Charlie, again, I had to believe in who he was and um, and 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 do the research that comes with understanding his world and uh, and and trust actually just really in the process and in this case in the director to to guide us. The best directors are the ones who just kind of go, it's over there, you know? They direct you, <laughs> just go over there and you'll find where you need to be. And occasionally there are those who, who do that even, even better. Um, and Darren's definitely one of them, yeah. Uh, my name's Mackenzie. I just wanted to say me and my mom love with honors, so it's just a fantastic film. And my question was, working with so many different actors, have you, has anyone ever given you advice that you t have taken with you, like, through your career? Yeah. Ian McKellen, 
in some conversation left me with um, you, you need to, to approach the work as if it's the first and the last time that you ever will. You know, think about that. It's, that's great. It, that stayed with me. That and be good, be brief, be seated. <laughs> Please join me in thanking Brendan so much for coming up here and being so generous with Thank your you, time. Scott. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.